So uh, with that said, I want to take a moment um, today and uh, kind of be, be, be still, to be still today. There's this verse uh, in the Psalms that uh, we take a moment regularly, take a moment regularly to, to gather around. And it takes uh, a little bit of effort, I think, in our world to actually stop the visual and the audio distraction. So if you have your phone out for a moment and you're ready to take notes, I want to encourage you to put it down for a moment. you've got like earbuds in right now. Um, I don't know why you're here, but it's great to have you still. You're really welcome though, just the same. And just to be still for a few moments. And whatever noise comes, rustling of people next to you, whispering, sirens that may go by, music that starts downstairs, it's all, it all belongs. We can stop the clipboard for a moment and just to be still. We hear the words of the psalmist, to be still and know that he is God. To be still and know that he is. To be still and just know. To be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Grace and peace. Thank you for your patience, everybody. <laughs> I don't know what to do. Um, one other thing I'll mention before I launch into our teaching for today is um, our home groups. Uh, we handed these out at a number of our home groups. So these are communities of like 10 to 20 people who uh, gather together to eat together, to pray together, to study scripture, to serve together. And, um, and so this is a, a simple book that actually has the same title as our series, funny enough, just called Teach Us to Pray. It's incredibly simple. Uh, it's a really easy read. Um, you can read it in, easily in about like 45 minutes. Um, but what we're encouraging folks to do is to just explore beyond what we're gonna be able to cover in four weeks. And so some of the uh, cues and prompts and questions that are gonna happen in our home groups will happen uh, via this book. Uh, and so I encourage you in your home groups to pick one of these up. We don't have any here. Um, so if you're not a part of a home group, and if that's the incentive to join a home group, great. Like, I want a free book. Go ahead, go. Um, but we wanna encourage you uh, to pick one of those up from one of your leaders uh, and to allow this to help guide you along. So my teaching today, we're in week two of this series, and um, I'm going to zero in around a, on a funny psalm, uh, and it's Psalm 73. I want to apologize in advance. I don't have slides for you today, so the note takers uh, will need to be out in force. Uh, I have a, a lot to kind of cover in our time today. If you're new to the scriptures, you're new to the Bible, maybe you're new to church, we, we open the, the, the word regularly. We believe there's something beautiful and sacred and weighty 
uh, about it. We believe a lot of things doctrinally about it. We believe a lot of things. But for the person who may be brand new to all of this, um, I, I like to just encourage folks to consider again for a moment why we would turn our, uh, our eyes towards something like this. For all the arguments you could make um, for its brilliance, for how often it's been read and reprinted, and the great legendary people throughout history, its influence, as well as acknowledging the ways it's been distorted and twisted. We, in our, I think in our culture, we're in a cultural moment right now where people are clamoring for some sense of spirituality, clamoring for some sense of making sense of what love and God is in an era of fake news, in an era of having access to so much information and not knowing what to trust and not to. And so I find more and more people that even though they have a lot of skepticism about the Bible, there is something uh, intri intriguing to them to go back and look at how have people understood their spirituality? How have they understood love and beauty and justice and wonder throughout history? And is there anything to learn from that, to peer in on how folks have wrestled with the divine? And so that's why we turn to the scriptures. And Psalm 73 is this funny passage where you have a worship leader who... Uh, a guy named Asaph, who's written a ton, like some of the greatest hits of the Psalms. And he is um, having this moment where he's turned his eyes away from God. And he's starting to notice how everybody else who doesn't seem to worship God, who doesn't have this set and understanding idea of the world, seem to have it better. He's kind of turned his eyes off of his call and things begin to get distorted and it begins to get a bit disillusioned. And so I want to talk about this today because um, this sermon, I, I'm hoping, is going to bring us to a greater conviction of the way in which um, we don't do a good job paying attention. I meet most people when we talk about prayer, and it came up a lot after last week. Does anyone remember the name of the sermon from last week? Ah. Oh. That's all right. What was like the main theme? Pray, yes, thank you. Pray what you got. Pray as you can, not as you can't. Oh, I feel great. Sometimes I don't remember what I preached on last week, but it was simply like, hey, just pray as you can, not as you can't. We get so caught up on how we can't do things. Like, just pr pray as you can. Pray as you can. So t today, I, though, I've realized as people have been talking to me about that. They're like, well, I start to pray as I can, and then I'm quickly distracted. I don't know if you've noticed, but your attention span has likely decreased greatly in the last five or six years. I'm, I'm going to do that annoying thing that sometimes pastors like to do and pick on smartphones and, and, and our media culture right now. But I think it's important. I'm not the only one doing it, and it's definitely not Christians who are the only one doing it to acknowledge the fact that we're having a concentration crisis. Why do I feel so compelled as I begin to read a book to go and look at Facebook or go and look at Instagram or pick up my feed and go? Why? Why do I need things in bite-sized chunks? Why all of a sudden do podcasts need to break it up every like 10 minutes and put a little song in there just to break up our space? I know that distance, distantly, and we all know this, that there are shrinking attention spans that this is sort of happening like across the board and study upon study. But the more I began to do research, I discovered some alarming things. Um, in this uh, book, The Shallows, uh, which I want to be honest, <laughs> in a sermon on distraction, I didn't read. I got a bit distracted. Um, I didn't read the whole thing, but I did pull some great quotes from it. And this was one of them. Nicholas G. Carr says in The Shallows, he says, what the, the net, 
seems to be doing, it's a little old, is chipping away my capacity for concentration and contemplation. Whether I'm online or not, my mind now expects to take in information the way that the web distributes it in a swiftly moving stream of particles. Once I was a scuba diver in a sea of words. Now I zip along the surface like a guy on a jet ski. University professor Catherine Hayes confessed, I, get my students, I can't get my students to read whole books. She's a professor of uh, literature. I can't get them to study and read whole books anywhere. Something's happening to our attention spans. We've repeatedly seen this over the last hundred years or so with different technologies. Technology comes in, as it's introduced, and it disrupts our habits. Not, it's not all bad, but it disrupts our habits. So it's good we need to acknowledge these things. First was the newspaper. If you study the history of the newspaper, the newspaper was basically designed to distract people's attention. And the development of the newspaper was an attempt to kind of hijack people's attention spans. This moves into evening radio broadcasts. People gather around a little box. Uh, as it's putting out sounds, makes its way to the television set where people would gather around key programs with a family rhythm, watching TV. Maybe you had that as a kid. We all gathered together and watched a show at a time. The third screen, so there's like the four screens. There's the newspaper, the TV, and then there's the internet, which was email and how we could communicate with one another. But the third screen at least was in a solitary place. You had to go to it. And now we're on the fourth screen uh, where the computer screen before is like with you everywhere you go. And this has obviously changed our lives. One author talks about in terms of capturing our attention, describes this as the equivalent of fracking. People know what fracking is, like when you're fracking for oil? It's like mining for reservoirs that were previously unreachable, but now can be accessed and harvested. That's how he equates the phone to. The the fourth screen uh, is with us everywhere we go. There's the fracking of the modern attention span where even the smallest moments of our lives are being harvested and targeted and tracked. He has this great line. He says, the algorithms are after us. So the big thesis of what I want to talk about today is that distraction leads to disillusionment and attention leads to adoration. Distraction leads to disillusionment and attention leads to adoration. I want to quote uh, my friend John Tyson on that line. Talking about attention and how critical this is for us if we're going to talk about prayer. People are like, teach me to pray, teach me to pray. I can't even stay focused. I can't seem to pay attention anymore. The most sincere way I have people say to me honestly that when I try to get in the presence of God or read the scriptures or just be aware of what's happened in my day, I can't concentrate. So rather than like week two talking about, and I know a lot of you are hoping for this, like contending for revival Instead of like talking about intercession and the power of prayer and how it's changed things, building off the research we talked about last week, I wanted to just do a short and simple talk about learning to pay attention to how God is moving. Because if you can't pay attention, any other Christian-y stuff is just theory. And we have a bad habit in the church of taking in ideas, going, isn't that interesting, gleaning a few things, and then moving on unchanged. Attention, if we're talk about attention for a moment, it's basically about this, short-term memory. 
We have lim- I did my best to research. I know we have a lot of um, very brilliant and bright people studying a lot of things, so I always try to do my due diligence, so please forgive me and give me grace for trying to take a week and study this topic. If I- <laughs> short-term limited memory. Limited short-term memory. Over time, our brain is processing through these systems to try to determine what I'm going to dump out. So your brain's acting like RAM, if you know the computer. Because I have limited RAM... Your brain's trying to decide what it can dump and what it needs to go into, full, uh, into long-term memory. So, for example, if I gave you a phone number right now on the screen, asked you to memorize it, I'll give you a minute, and then asked you three minutes later, most of you could probably recount it back to me. If I put a number on the screen, you looked at it, you memorized it for a second, I took it away, about three minutes go by, and I said, hey, what was that number again? Most of you would be able to recall it. But later on tonight... If I were to call you all up at 11.30, which would be strange, and ask, could you repeat that number back to me? Most of you probably could not. Now, if you were hanging out in a park or at a coffee shop or a pub or a restaurant, whatever, and you saw somebody who you were like, wow, she, he, I'm really getting along with them. This is nice. They seem really sweet. They are, have a wonderful personality and are moderately attractive. <laughs> and they gave you their, their number. They told you your number. Chances are you would remember it. Did anyone remember the phone number of like their high school sweetheart? Be honest, right now, could you call it up in your head? 7891775. Uh. <laughs> Sorry, honey. Sure, she doesn't have that number anymore. <laughs> like, these numbers just stay. Well, because my brain converted that to long-term memory because we dated for, like, four years. And I didn't have a cell phone to, like, keep the number in there. <laughs> this is how uh, our attention spans work. So in the modern attention economy, which, again, if there's truth to it being mined as a commodity, the basic goal is to take captive our short-term attention and convert it to long-term loyalty to products, corporations, ideas, people. Ben Parr, in his book called Captivology, says this about the process. You can find a great outline of his book online. Uh, this is not a Christian book. This is literally about like how do you like, captivate people. First, you need to elicit a reaction by being distinctive or disruptive. Once you have your audience's immediate attention, you need something unique and novel and useful to keep that working memory focused on your message. You can't just break in and disrupt. There's got to be something meaningful or it will go away. Having secured the short-term attention, he writes, you must create values for your audience to capture their long-term attention. So the book basically gives like seven triggers uh, to try to wake people up and convert their memory to loyalty. It's how to leverage these triggers to get people to do what you want. Now, what's this got to do with Psalm 73? In this passage, Asaph, a worship leader of David, he's employed to lead the people of God from the distractions of everyday life into the presence of God. And then he gets his eyes off God. And then he basically falls into this cycle of distraction, moving to a place of discouragement and leading to a place of disillusionment. The psalm 
I love this because it, it also shows that people who literally their job and vocation is to pay attention and lead people into a place where they can pay attention, he gets distracted. So I hope that gives you a little bit of grace as we go into this. Distraction leads us to disillusionment, but attention to adoration. So let's look at this cycle. If you want to turn your Bibles to Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. It's almost like he started watching Keeping Up with the Kardashians. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Just kidding, Kim, if you're here. I love you. Grace and peace to you. But does anyone really want to keep up with them anymore? Is that still happening? It got really quiet in here. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. He's turned his attention to these people and he's like, they have everything. I got nothing. They, they, they're not honoring you, God. And they're like, lives, they're killing it. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters of abundance. They say, how would you know? Does the most high know anything? They scoff at God. This is what the wicked are like, free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. We'll come back to this in a moment. Asaph, envying other people's lives, it creeps in. He gets his eyes off God and begins to contemplate the arrogant and the wicked and he begins to get distracted. We live in a culture that is conspiring. Conspiring. This isn't like just the culture outside the church. Like everywhere. This isn't outside the church. This is like the water we are swimming in. It, it does. It, the distraction, like it happens through disrupting that first stage of attention. Waking us up to these, like these triggers that are working to get us to pay attention to sensational things and controversial things and emotional things. I mean, the 24-hour news cycle, everything is a drama. Name a time that you've tuned into the news and it's like, you know what, it's a good day. Here's a couple great things that happened. Just wanted to let you know. There's a lot of stuff bad happening in the world. It's outside your sphere of influence today. You know, people are always struggling, but you know, today was a good day. Let's just call it. Go be with your family. Make a meal. Like, we're out. Channel 12 dials out. You know, like, everything is drama. It's always best at Rhode Island News. I've been, uh, my wife and I, as so we've been renovating our new home, we've been living with our in-laws, and they, uh, we don't have a TV in our house. So uh, having a TV at their place that has, like, regular, like, normal local cable has been, like, interesting. It's been a while since I've watched that. And so watching Eyewitness News for Rhode Island, now, Rhode Island has some drama for sure. Worcester Red Sox, for instance. Gosh, evil is alive and well. If you don't know what I'm talking about, that's fine. But I'm, I'm reminded that there's a lot of times where there's not exciting news to report on. And it's like, guy saves cat from tree. It's like, just after the break, there was a cat in a tree. A guy saved it. And they drum this stuff. It's like everything is meant to distract us. Everything is 
full tilt and turned up to 11, everything is a crisis and everything is urgent. And if it's not a crisis that's distracting us, it's something that we desire, something that we envy. We get pulled out of our lives into envying other people's lives. This distraction like influences our consciousness away from the things of God. We begin to be distorted by what we're giving our attention to. Distraction leads us to see things in a distorted way. It gets us valuing things that aren't real. And then we act like it doesn't affect us. I love that, that trick that the devil has pulled on me for years it's like I can bifurcate. No, no, this is just a fun distraction. That's cool, and there are fun distractions. I'm not taking anything away from that. But the idea that it's not playing some role in shaping your psyche and how you say things uh, is a uh, very naive viewpoint, I would argue. Look at what they say. They scoff and speak with malice, Asaph says. With arrogance, they threaten Oppression, their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. Now, it's not true that everybody who's like wealthy and godless is healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. But when you get your eyes off God, your vision gets distorted. Your vision gets distorted. You're paying attention to someone else's life. You're envying someone else's life. And I don't need to remind you again of how social media just makes this so much worse than it has ever been. It took a pretty common human-like move, like don't covet, and it just turned the temperature way up on this. Because we're not even really envying people's real lives now. We're envying people's fake lives. We distort our awareness of values about life, and this distortion can be strong and urgent it. It can be also subtle and slow and seductive. For instance, binging. Is there any area in your life where binging is, an, is like okay? Like, oh, yeah, man, I've been binging on food lately. If your buddy came up to you and said that, you'd be like, cool, bro, let's talk about that. Yeah, yeah I, I, have, I have just been like binging on booze. It's been sick lately. Most folks are like, yeah, you're probably getting sick lately. Um, that was such a dumb joke. But the only place where this seems to be socially acceptable is where? Binging on sleep? Sure, we could probably use more of that. Netflix. That's where it's socially acceptable. Because something that people say, people like reading. I've never heard anyone say I've been binging on reading lately. I'm sure that happens. I'm just trying to hit things that happen. <laughs> Right? This is okay. This is okay now. Um, I have a, a few little comments on this. <laughs> if you serve the poor for eight hours a week, 12 hours a week, would that impact you and shape you in, such, such a, in, a, in a way? In some way, if you spent 12 hours a week with the urban poor, with the hurting, would that shape your mind? It would, Right? In some sort of way, if you were to develop a skill and you took a class to learn something, 12 hours a week, you were like, I'm going to pour eight hours a week, I'm going to pour out some time, take some time to learn this trade, to be around people who are doing this, to grow in this, would it shape the way you think, see the world, would it shape you in some way? So why do we think that if we take eight to 12 hours to binge Netflix, do we think, oh, but that doesn't affect me at all? A Netflix poll found that 61% defined their viewing style as binge-watching, which meant two to six episodes at a sitting. 
Greg McCracken, a cultural anthropologist who was paid by Netflix to investigate and promote the habit, reported that TV viewers are no longer zoning out as a way to forget about their daily life. They are tuning in on their own schedule to a different world, getting immersed in multiple episodes and multiple seasons of a show every few weeks. This is a new kind of escapism. Andrew Romano says that at this, after watching Game of Thrones for a mere 30 seconds, he says, my brain begins to produce the alpha waves typically associated with hazy receptive states of consciousness, which are also generated during the light hypnotic stage of suggestion therapy. At the same time, our neurological activity switches from the left hemisphere to the right. This is from a seat of logical thought to the seat, the seat of logical thought to the seat of emotion. Whenever this shift takes place, my body is flooded with the natural opiates known as endorphins, which explains why you have repeatedly told, we've repeatedly told scientists who, re, or sorry, people who relax as soon as they switch on the television. Also why the same sense of relaxation tends to dissolve immediately after the set is turned off. This should alarm us. Asaph gets his attention off God. And then he get, begins to get his vision of life distorted, of what's most important distorted. And so what's his response? It's like, it's like, what's the point, man? I look around and everybody who's not following God seems to be happy. All my friends are sleeping around and partying and whatever. Like, like I, they're having a better time. And I'm just like trying to follow Jesus and do the right thing. And I'm miserable and lonely. What's the point? You get discouraged in your spirit and it feels like it's not worth it because your vision has been distorted. You've been distracted by other things which ultimately lead people to a place of, to pick another D word here, disobedience. This is always what happens when you're discouraged, sin comes along and you're like, okay. When you're discouraged, when your eyes are off, this is when, and we, this is true like of so many other things. This isn't like just, you don't need to just think about this through a Christian lens. We begin to get distracted and our eyes off the thing we're aiming at than any little thing that comes along that wants to pull, off, pull us more off course of the person that we're trying to become. It's so much easier when we're in that place of discouragement. Disobedience is when my heart was, he says, my heart was grieved and my spirit was betrayed. I was senseless and ignorant like a brute beast before you. This is a worship leader saying, instead of being caught up in the presence of God, I am running on animal instinct. And this leads to a point of disobedience, which then leads to disillusionment in verse 16, if you're following along. When I try to understand this, it troubles me deeply. The intensity of this language, the lack of peace, it troubled me deeply. Distraction leads to distortion, Distortion to discouragement, discouragement to disobedience, which leads us into a place of disillusionment. The only way to break the cycle is to distract yourself with something else, and then the cycle often lives on. Now, let me be very clear about something, because at this point in the sermon, you're like, this is a bummer. I am not here to condemn you. I want to see us walk in freedom. Have you ever had a loved one or a, like a friend or a parent like push you, call something out of you, ID something in you because they see you killing yourself? Because they see you not living up to your potential? Have you ever had that happen before? 
Somebody took you on a long walk and said, hey, I need to draw, I need to call your attention to something because you are not living your best life. God has something better for us. I want to believe that today is an invitation for you to step out of disobedience and into joy. Into joy. I want to read a long quote to you for a moment to kind of seal this. Ronald Roheiser says this. Narcissism accounts for our heartaches, pragmatism for our headaches, and restlessness for our insomnia. And the combination of all three together account for the fact that we are so habitually self-absorbed by heartaches, headaches, and greed for experience that we rarely find the time and space to be in touch with the deeper movements inside of and around us. There's all sorts of analysis about this. He quotes Thomas Merton. He once said that the biggest spiritual problem of our time is efficiency, work, pragmatism. Neil Postman suggests that as a culture, we are amusing ourselves to death. That is, distracting ourselves into bland, witless superficiality. Henry Nouwen uh, wrote eloquently uh, about our greed for experience and restlessness uh, or, sorry, agreed for experience in the restlessness, hostility, and fantasy that brought, blocks solitude, hospitality, and prayer. What each of these authors and countless others are saying is that we, for every kind of reason, good and bad, are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. Anyone else feel that? It is not that we have anything against God, we don't have anything against depth or spirit. It's just that we are habitually too preoccupied to have any of these things show up on our radar screens. We are more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual, and more interested in the cinema, the World Cup, the shopping center, and the fantasy life they produce in us than we are in church. Pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are today's blocks within our spiritual lives. If I had more time, I'd read that whole thing again a lot slower and exegete it for you like scripture. How brilliant is that? Does that resonate in your heart? It's not that I don't want to be spiritual or lack depth or connected with God and be aware of more and what's happening in my heart. These things just don't show up on the radar screen. There is just not time and there's not a value system. That would be nice maybe in retirement, maybe for two weeks on vacation. This is so linked to prayer because maybe you're here and you just like seem so disconnected from God. The idea of being a person of prayer seems like so far away. And a first step of you moving toward God is just to be aware of the distractions. You got to be aware and you've got to filter them. My friend John, who I've mentioned last, last week, who I'm indebted to for some of this content, he, he was talking about, he was telling this story about, um, uh, he was trying to figure out a way to not use his phone so often, and so he got the Apple Watch, right? And so a friend of his had basically told him uh, that, well, to get the Apple Watch, really the, the main point of it, uh, depending on how you're probably going to it, use it, John, is just to let you know when you need to go into your pocket to take your phone out. 
It's just going to let you know. Do I need to take my phone out or not? But the, 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 the default setting when he linked his phone up to his watch, when he put it on, was all the notifications are turned on. All the notifications. So he's walking down. His wrist is just like, like buzzing. And so he says this. He says, I had to be very careful then to go through, go app by app, and ask myself the question, by what do I want to be interrupted or reminded with my attention? With, sorry, what do I want to be interrupted by? What do I be reminded of? With all my attention drawn, as we should do this, we should do this, I'm sorry, in our lives. We should have a moment where we are going consciously, thing through thing. What am I allowing to capture my attention? It was like, all right, I could handle like, you know, a reminder from my email or a reminder from my message. Like, I got to turn Twitter off. Like, I got to turn these. I, I don't want, this is not worth me being interrupted throughout the day. To go thing by thing, line by line through our lives and go, what am I allowing to capture my attention? What am I allowing to capture my attention? What am I, can we say that with me? What am I allowing to capture my attention? How do I begin to audit the notifications that I'm letting in? Do I really need to know about these things? Otherwise, you're going to miss the miracle around you. I've shared this story before. There's this great Jewish midrash, like the story told of, of these two um, slaves who are being set free from uh, Egypt. They're headed to the promised land. And if you know the story or you've seen Prince of Egypt or something, the walls of water being held back on either side and there's these two slaves who are like looking down at like the mud-soaked floor. Maybe they stepped on like a crab leg or a sharp rock. Or they're like looking down. And so the midrash goes is as they're looking down, they're grumbling. They're grumbling and they're caught and their attention is caught up in the immediate inconvenience of this long walk. And all the while they miss the walls of water being held back on either side of them. They miss the miracle. Hebrews 1 says, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so we don't drift away. I have not found too many people who just peace out on the faith or peace out on obedience or peace out on walking the way of life as, as is defined by the way of Jesus. It's usually a drift. It's like going out it's a swim at Narragansett Beach, second beach. And all of a sudden, as you're just playing in the water, body surfing, hanging out, talking to friends, you get back out of the water and you're like, whoa, we are way down. The current has pulled us, you know, a quarter mile in this direction or whatever it is. You know what I'm talking about? You put a boat next to a dock, it will, without it being tethered and anchored, it will slowly start to drift the current will take you. We have to pay careful attention to not just, I'll just drift away. Let this little thing in and this distraction in and this distraction in and this distraction in. I think some of us act like, man, I, if God were like, were like really actively involved in my life, then I wouldn't drift because I said I loved him once. Anyone else feel that? Oh, I wouldn't have ever gotten to this place if God were like really alive and active. Name one relationship where that's real. That's like reinforces the idea that God wants a relationship with us. 
And he is not trying to puppeteer us. That reinforces the intimacy and personal relationship of a God who's after you. But if you're just going to drift and not pay attention, it's like, I can only do so much. And I mean that in that God can do anything. But when God's desire is love for us, there are some constraints in love. The psalmist in this middle of the cycle of despair has a revelation that changes his attention to adoration. Attention is the beginning of devotion. Attention is the beginning of a devotion. Jesus' emphasis on paying attention. I did a quick word study and I don't have time this morning to go through it all. But my gosh, the amount of times Jesus like, pay attention, stay alert, pay attention, stay alert. Seek first. Keep your eyes dialed in to what's true. All I can do is what I see my father doing. I got to imagine Jesus' attention was continued to turn and focus on the right things. We have to have our attention fixed on the right things. Verse 15. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. And then I understood their final destiny. He comes back to the house of God where he's like, oh my gosh, what was I thinking? Things became clear. This is why pastors say things like come to church on Sunday. For all of our talk and emphasis, which is going to ramp up even more, by the way, this fall. Like stop going to church, be the church. Like we're going to really put our money where our mouth is around that even further. But this has been the call of our church from day one. And yet I still, as a pastor, I'm like, yeah, come on Sunday. Why? It's not because pastors just like attendance numbers, or maybe that's part of it for some pastors. I don't know. The point is, if you can't carve out an hour and a half to two hours once a week to begin the new week centered around that which you believe is most true and beautiful and good, whether the music's awful or the sermon's awful or not, like gathering together with the saints to reorient my heart around the true, good, and the beautiful, I mean, you're going to drift. There's something about coming together with the people. This is how we do it in our community. That's why house churches, they come together regularly. We do this regularly to recenter ourselves on that which is most true. Something powerful about stepping into the house of God. When your attention begins to shift, I entered the sanctuary and then I understood how this all worked out. Look, when we reach death, our life experience will equal what we've paid attention to. Whether by choice or default, that's what your life is going to be about, what you paid attention to. Let that sober you. That gravestone stuff is like, what, what, what did that guy pay attention to? What did that woman pay attention to that shaped how they lived? So this begs the question, if you're stuck and distant, how may God step into your life and get your attention? What would be some indicators that God's trying to get a hold of you what are some things that God often uses? Really quick, I won't belabor this point, but one is pain. C.S. Lewis says, right, pain is the megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Richard Rohr says this, once we reach the, reach the age of 30, how many of you are 30 and over? Once you reach the age of 30, success has nothing to teach us. Success is fun and it's rewarding, but we don't learn anything new from it. It's not a bad friend, it's just a lousy teacher. Father Rohr says, the only thing that can teach us, that can get through to us profoundly, is suffering, failure, and loss. 
If you've ever read Richard Rohr, he's generally pretty encouraging. That's kind of a bummer, Richard. It's pain. It gets a hold of us. Sometimes it's beauty. Something will step into our life and we discover something that just takes our breath away. It's transcendent power. This is what art does and music does. It arrests us. It, it says, behold this. It disrupts. It says, pay attention to this over here. But most of the time, God just tries to get our attention through the ordinary stuff of life, right? Those normal moments of transcendence. Those moments, I had a moment recently, I was up at Prospect Park up on the east side. I'm looking out over the city as the sun's going down. Just said a brief prayer, just like, thank you, God. What are you doing in this beautiful city? And I just was arrested. And God began to reveal some things and speak some things into my life that I was just surprised by, changed by, shifted by. It's the small things, the ordinary things. If we can't discern God's presence in our day-to-day lives, Greg Boyd says, it's unlikely that we'll discover him at a revival or some other spiritual event. We may find a lot of excitement, great speakers, superb music, maybe even some signs and wonders, but unless a person learns to find God as much in the ordinary as in the exciting, the exciting will do nothing more than serve as a momentary distraction. Lawrence Kushner talks about the burning bush. How in Moses, if you know that story, bushes light on fire all the time in this particular area of the world. They would burst into flames. How did he know to pay attention long enough to look there? Long enough to know that God was speaking through it. The trick is to pay attention to what's around you all the time. Long enough to behold the miracle without falling asleep. Without falling asleep. When God gets our attention, or when, when we give God our attention, it leads, if you're taking notes, to awareness. He has this total awareness of the reality of life. He sees the good and the evil. He sees sowing and reaping. He's like, yeah, it looks like they have everything they need in this momentary thing, but I know where that train ends. I know how that all pans out. I don't think Asaph's just being, like, mean. I think Asaph's just, like, calling a spade a spade and going, yeah, I know where the real life is. It comes into focus because he's paying attention to the right thing. His awareness ultimately leads to an acknowledgement of God. Look at what he says in verse 23. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will take me into glory. And we do that. It ultimately leads to a place of appreciation. He's seeing God. He's aware of God. I put my focus back on that which I know to be true. And then he says, whom have I in heaven but you? This is the same guy who wrote the beginning of this psalm. And earth has nothing I desire besides you. You can see the contrast. He's looking at all these fleshly things that are going to fade away. And he goes, I know what's real and I know what's true. My heart and my flesh may fail. Clearly, he's not having a great time right now in life, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You are allowed to say amen at Sanctuary Church. Those who are far off from you, they'll perish. As for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. I find when people begin to put their awareness back on God, all of a sudden the memory bank is repopulated. Oh yeah, how could I have ever denied all the stuff that God's done in my life? Or the stuff in the life of those around me. I remember my story. 
When I begin to pay attention, I begin to see things through a different lens of beauty and faith. He gets to this point of total clarity. He sees God, and God just wakes him up. He acknowledges the good things come from him, and he appreciates this, and it leads him to a sense of worship. Attention, hear this, I'm going to close. Attention functions much like distraction. It leads us to a different result. Attention leads to awareness, and awareness leads to acknowledgement, and acknowledgement leads to appreciation for what he's done, and the appreciation for what he's done leads to admiration for who he is. So church, beware of distraction. Beware, pay attention to God as he moves and he speaks. Be aware. This book, Captivology, just basically has these three things then. How do you get people's attention? And it's basically this. It's like kindling. Sorry, it's ignition, kindling, and then there's the bonfire. Ignition is about our immediate attention. Kindling is about our short-term attention, and bonfires are about our long-term attention. It's just like lighting a fire. I never lit a fire before. And I had the awkward moment of standing there saying, yeah, I'll light the fire. And, and, and that, that girl you, you really like is right next to you. And you feel like your man card is on display. I don't mean to play into gender stereotypes, but fellas, tell me I'm preaching right here. You ever that moment, you're like, yeah, I know how to do that. It's like looking under a car hood. Uh, oh, yeah, the, the, the flux capacitor is a little off. Yeah. You're like, all right, I got this, I got this, I got this, I got this. Anybody got lighter fluid? Oh, I can't say lighter fluid. That means I'm not a, you know. Just a little bit, a little, these little moments. Hey, here's what I mean to ignite. Here's how I do it. This is something that baked into my life regularly. The place where I most fail at this actually is at night, which is why I've been like so stirred in this. My wife and I like reflecting on, on this idea of like, we need to end our day, the last thing that we do doing an examine, often do it in the morning, but to begin and end your day, the most powerful weeks and days of my life, that, 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 that spark and ignition is just beginning and ending my day with an examination. This is a practice that people have done for hundreds of years. At the end of every day, sit with, if you're remotely interested in this, write this down. Sit with Jesus, ask the Spirit, Pray to speak to you about your day. Ask a couple of questions. Where did I feel closest to God and why? Where did I feel furthest away from God and why? What brought me joy today and why? What hurt me today and why? These little tiny things will be the fuel. Be, be like a, they'll catch these little moments where the Spirit will speak into your life. And then you begin to put, it's like, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me? You'll begin to become aware of what's happening in your own heart. And then aware of who God is. And then you put a little kindling on it. You begin to talk to maybe a friend about what happened. Have a conversation with some purpose. Maybe you, 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 you do a little Bible study around it. 
this little moment, you have some like intriguing things that, that come up and you do a little research maybe on something. God, God's highlighted something in you. He's pu- pulled something up. And he's put a little bit of kindling on it. A little, little bit of stuff. You can't put the fuel on there yet. Don't just jump to like six-hour prayer meetings. <laughs> Don't jump to major life change. Just a little bit. I notice this thing keeps coming up in me. I'm going to talk to somebody about it. I notice this thing comes up in me. I should like look in the back of almost every Bible and look up that theme. Is there anything God says about this? If you're further along in the faith, you know this moment of going, God's bringing this up. I'm going to dive into it deeper. Then, then, then we get to start sticking logs on it. Study. Spiritual disciplines reshaping our life. Bringing f- major focus and discipline around these sorts of things. So, we have a choice. You can get your eyes off God and get distracted. Your life will become distorted. This leads us to discouragement and tempt you into disobedience, which can bring death and disillusionment and get sucked deeper and deeper into a life without God. Or you can pay attention to your attention. Pay attention to your attention. And realize that attention will lead you into adoration. It will cultivate an awareness on God. An appreciation for what he's done that will lead you to a life of passion. So my heart this week for you is incredibly simple. I want to challenge you. If last week was just pray what you pray as you can, not as you can. Just pray what you got. This week, my invitation to you is quite, quite simple. Just like end the day right. End the day right. That's it. That's your spiritual practice this week. Before you go to bed, even if you've just binge-watched Netflix for three hours, stop. And before you go to sleep, before you roll over, before the light goes out, put your phone away. Take a moment and reflect on those questions. If you're in home groups this week, we're going to send you an examine. Noam Chomsky says, the vision of modern man is an individual in a dark room alone looking at a screen. It was written decades ago. How do you change your day? How do you just get out of your own body and try to see yourself and what you're doing? Can you do that one more episode? Are you looking at inappropriate things on the internet? Are you with the wrong person? What are you doing at the end of the day? Just think years and years of doing the wrong thing, what that does. And try to imagine just closing out your day with Christ, being with you, and just going through your day with him. God promised to never leave us or forsake us. He's going to show you. He's going to show you what's going on. I promise you this tried and true practice in the church will do something. Something will begin to emerge. So this is the last story I promised to end with. You can welcome the band up. Hey, guys. Come on up. It's like every story can go back to the communion table. Every story can come back to the prodigal son. You see this cycle show up in the story of the prodigal son. Distraction. The prodigal son gets distracted by a far-off place. When living with prostitutes, living a life of sin, gets a distorted vision of who the father is. Right? Right? He gets this distorted vision. I don't even know if my father's going to take me back. I know I'm going to make up a line and a story. 
There's no place for him. He gets in his head because he was the youngest son. He thought he was going to get shafted. He's been disobeying. He wakes up in a pig pen, and then he comes to his senses. He pays attention. Had an awareness of who he was, and he begins to acknowledge the kind of person that his father was. And that led to an appreciation that leads him home. So wherever you are, I think you'll be amazed to find that in your deepest delusionment, disillusionment, the Father is paying attention to you. Running down the road to welcome you. His vision is your life filled with a bonfire, with passion and with purpose that's going to give warmth and light to the people around you. Would you pray with me? I'm reminded even now, God, of that idea of, of the prodigal son story of like the father like looking out and waiting. It was a long way off. He saw him. It seems like the father was waiting for him. As we're inviting like each other in this moment, as I'm inviting my friends here in our congregation, in our community to, to pay attention more to the things of Jesus, it's so comforting and powerful to know that you are paying attention to us. Your attention is turned toward us. I mean, this is what we see in the bread and the cup. You, the God of the universe, breaking yourself open and pouring yourself out for us. If that's not paying attention to us, God, I don't know what is. And I, we praise you. Right? We thank you. That nothing stands between us but love. So I pray, whatever conviction has set in, God, would it be protected? We, Lord, as a community, would just be marked by it. <laughs> we would be known as people who are paying attention to what's true and real and beautiful in the world. the implications of just what was shared in terms of even how as a church we can get distracted and pulled off mission as a community. Lord Jesus, make us aware of what's happening. I know for some right now, like the disobedient thing just like, just was like a trigger. Like there's stuff in your life you gotta, it's there and it's real and God hates it because he loves you and wants you to live life to the full. There's a lack of generosity. There's an unfaithfulness. There's a brokenness. God's like, just stop. Come back to the same. Hold. Get your eyes on me and get your eyes off that. Get your eyes back on me. Don't drift. Pay attention to the word that's been implanted with you. Pay attention to the love that's present. Pay attention. Pay attention. This is where the life is. Attention, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention.